Here we will be continuing our way through the gospel. According to John, we'll find ourselves at the beginning of the sixth chapter uh, this morning. Jesus has been ministering in our book. He's been down in Jerusalem. Now he is back in the Galilean countryside this morning along the Sea of Galilee. And, and what we'll have before us this morning is another one of John's signs. We've already seen several other of them. And the signs in John, they're, they're the miracles um, that he records. And what's distinct about this one is this is the only miracle uh, recorded in all four Gospels, assuming we don't include the resurrection among the miracles. Um, but it's the only one uh, contained in all four, which should tell us something of the importance of it. Uh, well, let's look at it now. Uh, chapter 6, starting at verse 1 after this. Jesus went away uh, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test them. He himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed it to them and to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up. They filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray, O oh Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this sign of our Savior Jesus Christ. Would you use it for us as we're gathered here today as an encouragement? Would you use your word to continue the transformation of your people? Would you help us through this to hear the good news of the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ? We pray in his name. Amen. Now, just um, about a week and a half or so ago, Adrian and I were away and we got to meet uh, Carl um, Fredrickson. I don't know if you know who uh, Carl Fredrickson is, but we had the opportunity to meet him. Um, maybe you remember him from the movie Up. Uh, but we had the opportunity to talk to him for a few minutes and his dog, and that's enough embarrassment. I think we can take it down now. But um, for those of you who've seen the movie Up, you remember it starts off with just this incredible montage scene, right? And it takes you through Carl's life, right? And it's only a couple of minutes, but if you don't see that montage, if you don't really understand it, you don't really understand the rest of the movie. Because you see Carl, you see his whole life, you, you see his relationship with his wife, you, you see his sense of adventure, you see all of these things, and it all is necessary in order to understand where the movie goes, right? Sometimes I think you and I, we, we can be very quick to just like jump past introductions and jump past those introductory remarks because we just want to get to the meat of things. But usually and typically, I want to encourage us 
as we read the scripture, let's not just jump past introductions. Let's not just jump past introductory remarks. They're usually there for a very distinct purpose. I, I think our words of introduction are actually here for an important reason. This morning, Jesus, we see in our passage, he, he, he's gone on to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And in verse 2, what do we see? But a large crowd is following him. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Why are all these people after him? Because they've seen all these wonderful things uh, that he has done. No doubt in last chapter, chapter 5, we saw down in Jerusalem, what did he do? He healed the invalid man, right? At the pool of Bethesda. But that's just one of, of many of the miracles that Jesus has done. And many of the miracles not recorded here in the Gospel of John. And because of all of these things, what are people doing? They're following him. They're chasing him. Wherever he goes... In verse 3, we learned Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. From the other gospel accounts, we know that, that Jesus, it seems, is actually at this point, he's trying to kind of get away from those crowds. He's trying to find some quiet time with his disciples, and so they go, and now they're up on the mountainside, and he sits down with his disciples. And we learn about the timing of all of this, and all the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And, and we hear all these things, and... Are you able to put them all together to know what's going on? Do you, do you see the setup that John's giving us here? Let's put the pieces together. Where are they? Other side of Sea of Galilee. Where is that? That's out in the countryside. All right? If you're, if you're following along in the Gospel of Mark, it's in a desolate place is where they are. Okay? They're out in the where? Wilderness. Think of it in those terms. Okay? And where, does, where is Jesus? Where are he and his disciples? On a mountainside. And so he's up on this mountain, out in the wilderness area, and there's a large crowd of people coming to him. And then there's this mention of Passover, which should be clicking in our heads. And maybe it's not, but what should be clicking is Moses. This should just be so reminiscent of Moses and, and leading the, the, the Israelites out of Egypt on the mountainside. The bread that's going to be provided, the manna that was provided in Moses' day. It should be the great setup for the story. We're missing something if we don't see it. Because our story pointing to the fact that Jesus is a great prophet, and we're going to see that at the end, right? And a great prophet, a prophet greater than Moses. But, of course, there's a problem in our story. All good stories have a problem, don't they, that need a solution. Maybe you've seen, watched, or better yet, read uh, the book, Martian, about that guy named Mark Watney who gets stranded on Mars. I mean, how much worse can you get than be the only person left on Mars and you got to try to figure out how to make subsistence, how, you, how you're going to get food, how you're going to recover, how you're going to do these things. You can't even communicate back with NASA. It's an impossible situation he finds himself in, right? Like, how do you do this? He, but he continues on. Of course, he needs help in it all. But it's an impossible situation. I, I want us to understand this morning is... As we approach the story, the, the problem in the story, it's an impossible situation. There, it's, it's, it's a problem without a solution, or at least a, without a solution, without Jesus. Verse 5, Jesus, he lifts up his eyes. What does he see? He sees the large crowd out in front of him. They're coming towards him. Okay? And whenever he looks out on these people and he sees them, what does he see? He sees a problem, and he's concerned for these people. He's concerned for these 
people. So he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people can eat? They followed Jesus out to the middle of nowhere. They pursued him. They've been so intent on pursuing him, they haven't even made provisions for their food, and now here they are. And when Jesus sees the crowd, remember, he's trying to get away with his disciples. Jesus doesn't have a pity party here because they've interrupted his solitude with his disciples. I'd probably have a pity party. Maybe you would too. You know, whenever you're in the midst of doing something, maybe it's work, and you're in the middle of something, you're focused on it. Or or, or maybe you're trying to rest and you're focused on your rest. Whatever it is, we focus on life and then somebody intrudes. Maybe it's a child, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a spouse and they intrude and they want your time. Sometimes we do what? We we kind of have a pity party because we want things our way. That's not how Jesus responds, does he? And he doesn't respond here out of obligation. He, He responds out of love and care and compassion for these people who have come out. And he has compassion not just for their spiritual needs, he has compassion for a very physical need that they have here. Or just, they need food. He sees, he looks out and he sees a needy people. And in verse 6, we kind of have a parenthetical little remark, and John does this every now and then in his gospel, doesn't it? We've already seen it. We see that he said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Jesus already has the plan. He already knows about exactly what's going to take place. But he's testing Philip. He's, he's testing the rest of his disciples, understand? He's using this as an opportunity to teach his disciples. Okay. And I think that'll actually be helpful as we look at this passage. In some ways, it's less about teaching these multitudes. He's using this as an opportunity to teach his closest disciples. So Jesus gives Philip an impossible task, doesn't he? Or at least a task that's impossible without him. And Jesus' question, you know, we've already seen this in John's gospel, right? Jesus makes these statements or he asks these questions that seem to have no solution. And they're deep. And and Jesus here, he's he's asking far more, I think, than, than Philip understands. He's not really asking him to go out and buy stuff. He's asking him to look ultimately to the one who can provide. What does Philip say? Philip's very practically minded, isn't he? He said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. He said, even if we have that much money, we'd only be able to get everybody a snack. We wouldn't be able to fill them up. Now, Philip's probably asked because he's from the area. Okay? He, he lives near it. So Philip knows all the stores, if you will. And Philip's just thinking through his practical mind. We, we can't put this together. We can't put together this big of a meal. We can't even provide a snack, really. And then one of the other disciples tries to offer up sort of a solution, right? Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, Andrew offers up something even less, Right? A couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Five barley loaves. Understand what barley loaves are. This is the food of poor people. Now, one author at the time says this about barley loaves. He says they are a food stuff. Now, when you start saying food stuff, you know something's going to be rough. It's like, you know, like a cheese product, you know, or like a dairy dessert. You know, it's not the real stuff. It's not the real ice cream a foodstuff of somewhat doubtful merit. 
suited for irrational animals and men and unhappy circumstances. That's what barley loaves are good for. And, and understand, you hear the word loaf. What do you think? You think like a loaf of bread. Probably about like the size of a biscuit. Okay, this isn't something huge. This isn't something, something big. And he has two fish. Don't be thinking of some big tuna or something. Probably about the size of a sardine. What? Understand what Andrew says. is he, he says, we found this boy and he has a Lunchable. Some of you know what those are, right? That's about all he has. He has, he has this Lunchable. His mom packed his lunch for him. And it's there that you might almost have a moment, a moment of hope, right? You, you might almost think, hey, Andrew gets it. Andrew's been with Jesus for a while, right? And he, he saw the water turned into wine. And he's got it. Jesus is going to take this little lunchable and he's going to multiply it so everybody can eat. But of course, we got to read the rest of Andrew's words. But what are they for so many? What are they for so, so many? He doesn't get it either. Here we need to be reminded Jesus is testing them, right? How have they come out with regards to the test? They should have known better. They've seen so, so many miracles, so many miracles that there's 5,000 men plus who knows how many women and children following him, maybe 10, 12, 15,000. We don't really know how many people. It's a lot of people. Even if it was just the 5,000, that's a lot of people, right? And they've seen a lot of incredible stuff, but what's the problem? They, they have no perceptions of this provision from Jesus on this large of a scale. Like they can't even, their minds don't even wrap around that kind of provision. Yeah, he provided some wine at a dinner party, at a, at, a, at a wedding party. This is on a whole other scale. And they're out in the middle of nowhere. They, they, they don't get it. You see, the disciples, they just see before them an impossible situation. And what do they fail to do? They fail to understand who it is that they have with them. Who it is that they've been, that's been leading them. They fail to see Jesus. They still don't quite get who he is. They're too practically minded. They have this need and they're trying to practically figure out how do we solve this problem? Is that you? Is that how you live? When you find yourself in need, when you find yourself in a seemingly impossible situation, you rely on your own knowledge, your own strength, your own wisdom. What do you do? I can remember um, in the midst of job search stuff before moving up to this area of the country, you know, I was trusting like my ability to put together a good resume and be, be great in interviews. Like, I got this. I can do this. What did God choose to take that time to teach me? Took the time to teach me, you know, you need to learn to trust me. Not that you can do it, not through your own strength, not through your own power, but that I can do this. There's, there's something in us that we want to be able to put all the pieces together, don't we? We want to be able to figure out how to make things work. And we look to all the wrong places to try to solve the deepest problems in our life. I'm reminded of that famous C.S. Lewis quote that we were like ignorant, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We think we can figure it out. We, we try to put it together so we're out in our backyards making mud pies. 
instead of being down to the ocean. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples to do what? No, you, you, you have to learn. You can't do this on your own. You can't make these mud pies on your own. I want to give you some, so much greater something, so much better. I want you to learn to trust in me. And if you can trust in me, oh, I am the source of true life, of real life. Life like you can only begin to imagine. Now, how does Jesus teach his disciples to trust in him? He offers a solution, doesn't he? You remember, maybe you don't, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, first of the Narnia books. Aslan, there's the great battle there, and Aslan defeats the witch and all of her cronies, right? They're defeated. And then we read this. How Aslan provided food for them all, I don't know. But somehow or other, they found themselves all sitting down on the grass to a fine high tea at about 8 o'clock. They find themselves with a high tea prepared for them out there in the field. Jesus here, in the midst of this impossible situation, what does he do? He sets a table for high tea, if you will, out there on this mountainside. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. Don't just throw that away. You understand what that is. That's the Apostle John saying, you can still see the green grass. I was there. I, I know the story well. I remember that day. I remember what Jesus taught us. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And what does Jesus do? He took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish. So what does Jesus do? What, what does he use? Let's just think about it for a moment. What does he use? He uses these five biscuits and these two little fish. He uses the boys' lunchable. And, and let's also think, I don't think we should think that this has like been requisitioned from the boy, like they went out there, they found this is the only food, and they snatched it from the boy. Maybe just maybe even the boy had brought it to the disciples and offered it to them. Maybe he even had faith that the disciples clearly fail to have. I don't know about that, but I do know that Jesus here, what does he do? He uses this boy's little lunch. And we're reminded of what God uses of ours. He takes whatever little we give up to him, and he uses it for his extraordinary purposes. Do you believe that? No matter how big or how small, it doesn't matter. God uses them. You know, we, we often, we bring things to God and we think that they're inadequate. We think they're paltry. This is pretty inadequate. This is pretty paltry. And yet, what, God, what does God do? He uses it for his extraordinary purposes. Maybe you've heard me mention it before, but I'm always just amazed at the way that God chooses to spread the gospel. How he chooses to spread and to multiply his kingdom. Are you amazed by it too? Seems like there are such better ways than using us. But he chooses to use you and I to grow and to multiply his kingdom. And you might be thinking to yourself, I, 
I don't have anything to offer. Maybe you think, I'm not very good at words. Like, it's hard. How can I express my faith to someone else, to, to share my faith with them, that they might come to know Christ? And when we say that, we're, we're totally missing the point, aren't we? We're totally missing who God is and what it is that He uses. He uses what little we, we, we have to offer up to Him for the purposes of His kingdom. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. That's not how we think of things. We, we like to think, well, God will use my strength because I'm big enough and I'm strong enough in this area. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's talking about the thorn that he has in the flesh and pleading with God, will you just remove this thorn from me? We don't know what it is. What does God say to him? He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What does God use? What does he use of yours? He wants to use you. He wants to use your gifts. He he wants to use all and everything that you have to offer up to him. And don't think for a moment that it's not enough. And in fact, that which we offer up is made perfect as we trust in him. As we trust him to use it. So what does Jesus do? Back to verse 11 again. He takes these five little biscuits and these two fish. And he gives thanks for them. Do you see how striking that picture is? Could you imagine people out in the crowd laughing? He has everybody sit down for a banquet on the hillside. And he offers up this little lunchable. People must have thought he was crazy. Out of his mind. How strange it must have looked. And to the watching world, no doubt it looked strange. Because all they saw, five little biscuits and two little tiny fish. But Jesus, as he offered it up, as he gave thanks, what did he see? He saw a feast. That little boy's lunch was a feast, and Jesus used it as a feast. And as we continue on the passage, what did people do? They had as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. And they they were able to eat their fill. Not like they they just had a bite or just something to kind of tide them over. They were filled up. They couldn't eat anymore. They didn't want to eat anymore. What is Jesus teaching his disciples through this? Teaching them several things. First thing I want you to think about is he's teaching them something about compassion for people, isn't he? Jesus stops everything to feed these people. He interrupts his ministry with his disciples to practically help these people. Jesus sees this crowd from afar. And what he sees is their empty bellies and he's concerned for their empty bellies. So what does he do? Because of his deep compassion for the people, he he throws a banquet for them. A banquet for the needy crowd. And it's very impractical. If we were really to think through it and think of all that, there could be all sorts of reasons. You know, you put your pros and cons list. You know, should we do this? Should we not? I fear where we might come up with if we were trying to figure this out. We do as in the other Gospels. Oh, just send them home. Send, send them out in the countryside. Let them figure this out. 
Oh, I hope we can more and more learn to be a church that doesn't just make decisions based on practicality, but that we would grow more and more to have the heart and compassion of Jesus as we live out life in this world. That our hearts would look more and more like his. Verse 12, he tells the disciples, gather up the leftover baskets that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 12 basketfuls. Little lunchable. 12 basketfuls. Now what are those 12 baskets? Does Maybe it has something to do with the 12 tribes. I think there's probably a much more real reason here. Remember, what is Jesus doing? He's testing his disciples, right? And so what does he do? At the end of this all, they didn't know where it's coming from. None of them could see it. None of them could understand. How are we going to provide the bread for these people? And so at the end of it all, what are they doing? Each one of them is standing there with a basket full of bread. They're holding a testimony in their hands, something they can see, something that they could touch, something that they could even taste that reminds them that they can trust Jesus. One commentator puts it this way. There remains for each disbelieving disciple their own basket of leftovers to carry. They each have their own one. Yes, the story, we, we just mentioned a story of compassion for the crowd, right? But we need to understand, maybe even first and foremost, it's a story of compassion for the disciples. And it's not compassion for them because they don't have enough to eat. It's compassion for them because they still don't get who Jesus is. They're still struggling to believe it. And Jesus and his compassion for them is helping them to know better who he is. And it was going to take the disciples a long time. Don't think them standing there with those basketfuls is enough. In the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, you go on a little bit past this story, a little ways past, and the disciples again find themselves hungry. And what does Jesus have to say to them? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Do you not remember holding those baskets in your hand? They still were struggling to trust him. Are you still struggling to trust him? We want to say, yes, yes, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my everything. But do you really believe it? Or do you struggle to? Do you live like the practically minded disciples? I think I got this one figured out. Jesus, I don't know if I need your help right now. We need to look at our lives. What is it that we're really trusting in? Are you trusting in your own strength, in your own ability to put things together? Are you trusting in Jesus? Jesus is trying here to teach the disciples, oh, would you just trust me? Don't you remember holding those testimonies in your hand? says, how you gathered all those baskets. Don't you know you can trust me? Now, when 
The people see this, the crowd. We're not told here of the disciples' reaction. We're told of the crowd's reaction. What do they do? Verse 14. People saw this sign that he had done. They see this incredible miracle. They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Our passage takes full circle back to that, those introductory remarks, right? That great setup that, that they should have been seeing the similarities to Moses, right? In which they now see they have a greater Moses before them. The, the one who, in fact, Moses had prophesied about, Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him to whom you shall listen. And the people rightfully recognize Jesus a prophet. But let's go another step. This isn't just the greater Moses here. It is that. But recently, we went through the stories of Elijah and Elisha. And if you remember, in the stories of Elisha, there was a very similar miracle that took place. Elisha was trying to feed 100 men. And he only had 20 barley loaves. Now, that might seem like a lot, except we're reminded that there are little things. And his servant said, Elisha, there is no way that these loaves will be enough. So what did Elisha say? Second Kings, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them, and they ate and they have some left according to the word of the Lord. Is there any, understand, there, there's a reason why it's barley loaves. Okay. Jesus is doing what Elisha did, but on a much grander scale, right? Elisha has some left over. Jesus has 12 basketfuls left over. He's the greater Elisha, you see, right? Jesus feeds more people with less food. Elisha has 20. Jesus just has five. More people, less food, more leftovers. passage is trying to scream, is trying to grab us. Do you see that the greater Moses and the greater Elisha has come? A far greater prophet than the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament is now here. And so the people are correct that indeed it is the prophet who is right there before them. And they're also correct about something else. Verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And again, the people are correct. Not only is he the prophet, they see that he is the king. Yet how does Jesus respond? Jesus withdrew. He withdrew. Why? Because he's not the king that they wanted at the moment. I mean, just think about what they wanted. Think about this incredible miracle and series of miracles before that, but then this incredible miracle that Jesus had just performed feeding 5,000 men strong, plus who knows how many women and children? What did Jesus have? There's a reason here why it's 5,000 men. and doesn't tell us the number of women and children. Jesus has an army. They're ready to go. He only wanted to go. They're ready to march with him to Jerusalem. They've been expecting longing for that day when a greater David would come, as was promised to David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, he said to David. 
And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring after you, and you shall come from, and he shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And then just a little bit later on, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There is this expectation that this king had come, and the people see this incredible thing. There's 5,000 of them, 5,000 strong men. They're ready to go. Let's go overthrow the Romans. The people are ready to make him king. But understand what they're ready to make him king of. They want to make him king of their kingdom. Did you hear that? They wanted to make him king of their kingdom. A kingdom on their terms. In the way they wanted it. I fear that's often how you and I live. We just partially apply God's truth to our lives, right? We, we make him the king of our lives. We say he's the Lord of our lives. But what do we sometimes do? Maybe most of the time, maybe it's often. I don't know how often it is for you. But what do we find ourselves doing but defining the terms of his kingdom? We tell him How? And in what way he will be our king. What we will allow him to have reign over. We decide what his kingdom should look like. We don't take him on his terms. But on our own. Do you find yourself doing that? Not taking his kingdom as it comes. But trying to make his kingdom in in our own image. You struggle to do that too? Now because of this, Jesus withdrew. You read again in verse 15. He withdrew because he refused to allow them to set the terms of what it meant for him to be the prophet and the king. He walks away from what they wanted out of the king. And what does he do? He continues his march towards the cross. See what the people on that day were missing. They were missing the cross. They had no thought of that in their head, that, that, that the king would need to go to his death for his people. They had no category seemingly for that. But it was there that the cross, that the great king would give his life as a ransom for many. I love how one commentator puts it. He says this. When humanity didn't know for what it was hungry, Jesus came into the world, becoming the host in a strange land of darkness, providing true food that satisfies every desire. The church, that's us. We must recognize Jesus as he is. Not as it, not as we want him to be allowing the prophet and king to be what he also came to be, the one who serves. You see, you and I, we we must stop pursuing our own kingdoms, thinking somehow we know better than him, that we know better ways, we know better outcomes. And what he's trying to teach the disciples is, will you follow my path? Will you learn to follow my lead? 
Will you learn to pick up your cross? Follow me. You see, Jesus came to give those people on the hillside. He, he came to give them a much greater victory than they could imagine. They, they thought that a great victory would be the overthrow of Rome. They'd be able to rule themselves. Oh, their king had something much greater. He came not to defeat Rome. That would have been a little enemy. He came to defeat the greatest enemy this world has ever known. He came to defeat death itself. He came to defeat sin. And so he, he went to the cross to give himself as a ransom for many. So that all who would believe in his name would be forgiven, would be washed clean, would be declared innocent, would be adopted into his wonderful family, and promised eternal life. You see, Jesus came to deliver us from an impossible solution, an impossible situation, sorry. A much more impossible situation than bread for 12, 15,000 people. He came to deliver us from the most impossible situation of all. That is our impending death. But he offers us, oh, if you would just believe, you would just trust me, I have eternal life to give to you. And so the question for us today for you, for me. Do you, do I, do we know Jesus the prophet and the king? Do you know him? Not, in, not created in your own image. Or the image you'd want to create him in. But do you know him as he comes to you? Do you accept him on his terms? Not yours. Will you allow him to define the terms of the kingdom? Or will you continue to define the terms for yourself? Ultimately, will you trust that he really does know best? That he truly will care for you? He truly does know your needs? He truly has come so that you might have life and life to the do you believe that? Father, we, we, we so often we live in a world of our own making and our own choosing and think that we can control situations and outcomes and problems and Father, we are people who often think we can just do it on our own. Oh, would you be teaching us more and more to learn what it is to truly trust you. To trust you as our Lord, as our Savior, as our great King. And that we would accept you as you come. Trusting you. Trusting that you, the great King, you know far better than we do. You know our needs far better than we do. Oh, even when it's hard and it's difficult, 
when we don't understand, oh, would you help us to trust you? Whenever times go good, would you help us to trust you then as well? Oh, Father, as you were helping the disciples to come to know your son better, would you continue to help us to know your son better? That we would learn more and more to receive him as as he comes. That you would help us more and more to put our faith and our trust in Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we pray this all in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.